Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 5-5. Why did three astrologers travel 660 miles to worship a baby? How can we see human tragedy in light of God's greater good purposes? And does Jesus love aliens too? Steve will answer these questions and more in today's teaching. Be sure to stick around at the end of the teaching as we sit right here and discuss how we can apply the truths of Matthew chapter 2 to our own lives. Hello again, everybody. Uh, Good to be gathering again on this series we're doing on the uh, Gospel of Matthew. And uh, today we're going to go through chapter 2, which is really part 2 of Matthew's prologue. Last week, we looked at the genealogy and then uh, uh, Joseph's encounter with the angel. Matthew is writing at a time that the church is growing explosively. However, it's growing primarily with Gentiles. The Jews are largely uh, rejecting the gospel. So just like in chapter 1, Matthew is preaching the gospel to both groups— Uh, But he's using a series of symbols and and types, and we'll explain what that word means in a little bit. But um, Egypt, the Magi, which are the the wise men, uh, Herod, the Jewish leaders, Bethlehem, Nazareth, these are all uh, symbols that are pointing us to things that he's trying to say that are very, very important for his day and for ours. So once again... As we jump into this chapter, I want to start by looking at historical events. I want to look at the the literal meaning. And uh, I'll review this different times through this series. But as we learned a few weeks ago when we had uh, Brad Jerzak with us, we want to learn to read the scripture primarily in three ways. um, Because we want to see what it is that Matthew is trying to convey. Uh, That's the literal meaning. The moral meaning is, how can this make me more Christ-like? And then that third, which we're going to go further into today, is the spiritual meaning, the deeper meaning. So, as always through this series, I have, in my study, drawn from uh, ancient and uh, modern sources from the different streams. As I, For those of you who maybe haven't been listening up until now, I purposely am not only a, a, a wide chronological range, but d- different church traditions, uh, mainline Protestant, uh, evangelical, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and that's very intentional. So let's dig in and begin with chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we've seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of uh, Judah, For out of you shall come a ruler 
who will shepherd my people Israel. Well, let's start by looking at Bethlehem. Bethlehem at this point had been known for a thousand years as the city of David. And uh, what Matthew was quoting there is, is a scripture that, that all Jews would have known, Micah 5, 2, that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. Uh, of this they were certain. And then he tacks on another verse, uh, 2 Samuel 5, 2, who will shepherd his people Israel. Matthew is continuing to build upon what he opened with Jesus. Remember, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Uh, he's continuing to build upon that and, and shading that with the shepherd motif that was also universally. Okay, technical difficulty. Hopefully we're, we're solving it. Um, okay. So the last thing that I just said, I think, is that uh, they were suspected by both Jews and Gentiles, the Magi, of, uh, of being kind of black arts idolaters. Uh, this is still in, in some uh, of the early church fathers' writing. They wrote very negatively about them uh, to their own contemporaries. So we're seeing a theme beginning to develop the Magi were, were consciously um, avoided by Jews and Christians when Matthew was writing. Um, and so in the Jewish culture, there's an exclusion here. So we contrast that with Jesus, who, who was inclusive with the Jewish leaders in Matthew 9 as a classic example. I didn't come. Uh, I didn't come for the those who think that they're well, those who think they're in good shape spiritually, but I came for those who who are outsiders. Um, and this is a theme that he's going to develop and develop. It's remarkable, really, that Matthew introduces him. It is as remarkable that he introduces the three magi as it was that he brought in the four women we talked about last week. Uh, Tamar and, and Rahab and, and Bathsheba and Ruth. Um, and he does so without any hesitation or embarrassment or explanation. Um, you know, they were, they were socially and religiously unsuitable, and yet here they are right at the beginning of the Christ story. Um, and this, is, this fits Matthew's uh, movement throughout uh, his gospel. Um, he's moving toward universal inclusion. Matthew 24, 14, often a, a verse I love, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to all nations. Uh, Matthew 28, 18, go into all the world, all the ethnos. Another point about the Magi is that they're seekers. Uh, these, these are foreigners who had very, very limited understanding or knowledge uh, of the Scripture and yet they believed enough to make a long journey. From, from Persia to Bethlehem was about 660 miles, which, by the way, would have taken in those days about five to six weeks. Why that is interesting, I don't know about you, but I was taught uh, because of what we're going to read with Herod wanting the killing of the, of the young boys. Uh, I was taught 
uh, that that they came two years later. There's really no basis for this. So they probably came just within just over a month after uh, we have Luke's account. And what did they come to do? Did they come to check things out to see if they were right? No, they came to worship. Uh, Matthew is stressing that coming to Christ means means sincere seeking, and that it takes effort. It took effort to go 660 miles. And so that effort changes the direction of their lives. He's telling us that effort to seek, that effort to worship changes the direction. Um. So he's, he continues to introduce more Gentiles into the story. What he's saying is God is overcoming, through the gospel, racial, cultural, and, and moral barriers. Uh, Paul said this to the church in Ephesus. He said, at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Second point I want to make about this journey is the star itself. You know, there have been so many efforts to identify the star, um, and there still are. You can read, you can read uh, commentaries from the last 20 years, and some of them will go on long journeys of what this star could have been, could have been a comet, maybe it was a perfect alignment of the planets. This was recent again in our news, wasn't it? Uh, it could have been a supernova um, one modern scholar believes that the star was really an angel. But I agree with the majority of the church fathers that, that it was simply a supernatural appearance. Because if you think about it, how could one star appear, disappear, reappear, move and stand still over a particular location? That could only happen by supernatural means. The star leads us, I think, into a greater understanding of revelation. The star, the star points us to revelation that comes through God's creation. Just parenthetically, this has been a huge growth area for me in the last couple of years. How often the Lord speaks to me through creation, which was not a pattern in my life for for decades. It uh, so this star it it both uh, leads them forward, but it draws them. It draws their hearts. It draws uh, their desire. Now, an interesting thing to point out too is that the scriptures, because the star did not actually, at this point in the passage we're looking at right now, did not lead them to Jesus. It brought them as far as Jerusalem. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Uh, and we're back to, uh, they they ask this and they're they're told, the the Micah uh, verse that uh, 
Bethlehem in the land of Judah are not the least among the rulers, for out of you comes a ruler. Uh, not least of you <laughs> among the rulers of Judah. The, the scriptures lead them to Bethlehem uh, and to the Christ child. But, but the star didn't directly do that. The scripture was like an intermediate step. The star brought them close, but they needed an understanding of the scripture. You know, like many of you, um, it was through reading the gospel that I found Christ. (laughs) I found the manger by reading the gospel. I I was an unchurched man, a young man, and it was as I started to read the Bible that the scripture led me to Christ. And when they saw the star again, so they leave and they head on their way and they see the star again. And that says they rejoiced because they came to worship. The, the star demonstrates that all of the powers of the cosmos bow to the one who created them. The the mystery of the star points us to the the infinite and eternal majesty of Christ in all of the cosmos. The the star alludes to and fulfills uh, a line from Balaam's prophecy. Remember Balaam back in Numbers, uh, where he said, A star shall rise out of Jacob, and a a man shall uh, a man shall rise out of out of Israel. This was widely regarded as messianic by the way. So Matthew continues with his theme of Old Testament fulfillment. We're going to see it all the way through the the book of Matthew. And it this fulfillment reveals God's supernatural care of his son, his eternal purposes. The the Old Testament anticipates the hostility and the persecution and the suffering that Jesus was going to face. Now let's look a little bit at at Herod and the scribes and the Jewish people. This is something that part of this I only noticed in the last few months as I've been studying Matthew. Uh, When uh, Herod the king uh, heard this, uh, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. That's what I noticed. It wasn't just Herod who was troubled. Jerusalem was troubled. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So notice that that Matthew, uh, Matthew connects Herod and the Jews. And, and the word there means troubled, agitated, distressed, disturbed. Matthew is trying to awaken the Jews uh, of his day. He's, I think he's even trying to shake them up. Uh, he's, he is setting up an obvious contrast. We've got the Gentiles, the, Gentiles, the Magi, who travel for hundreds and hundreds of miles with, without much knowledge or understanding, but believing 
in the little bit of revelation that they had. On the other hand, Herod, and especially the scribes and the priests and even the Jewish people of Jerusalem, they knew about the ancient prophecies. They'd known about them for generations, and they could easily identify them. But when they heard that the fulfillment was had come, they could not even be bothered to walk the five and a half miles. There's a reading here, again, a moral reading. We need to be diligent to root out dullness of heart, unbelief from our, our minds and our hearts. It brought me right back to an episode in 1994 when there was a great outpouring in Toronto uh, in, at a church called Toronto Airport. And uh, we were sister church with them we were, uh, I think, 35 miles down the road. People with this move of the Spirit, and it was when Randy Clark came, and, and people just came and came and came. And uh, John Arnott, the pastor, had called me, said, something amazing is happening here. It's been going on for three days. Get over here. And I said, okay, well, pretty busy, but we'll try to get there. Another week went by, and he said, it is still going on. It's bigger than ever. Get over here. I remember we had a staff meeting, and there were six of us pastors, and I'm talking about this, and we're going back and forth. Well, our schedule's pretty busy. We'd have to stop this class or this program if we're going to go there. And then one of our pastors, and I will forever be grateful, it's like he snapped out of it. He said, what are we talking about? The world is coming to see this. It is 35 miles away. We need to go. And, you know, likewise, in Toronto, there were 2 million people came over the next year, but very few of them from Toronto itself. So I think there's a lesson there for us. Let's go on, verse 11 and 12. Um, Entering the house, the Magi saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. Now, let me harmonize Luke's account and Matthew's account. Uh, Remember, we said the genealogy and the whole focus of Luke is more on Mary and Matthew is more on Joseph. But we know, anybody who's ever been to a a Christmas pageant, we know that that Jesus was born in the stable in a manger. And Matthew says, when they came into the house, let me explain this. In those days, um, houses kept their livestock down in a room below on on the ground floor because their body heat contributed to heating the whole house. So, so really, it wasn't a stable like we think of as a separate building, as we would consider a stable nowadays. It was a part of the house. And so both Luke and Matthew's description are not in conflict. Now, for them to come and, uh, and, and enter and worship him and give their gifts— the church fathers saw this as a really strong incarnational statement. 
The God of the universe, think about this. The God of the universe, the creator of the cosmos, permits himself to be placed in a manger, which is just a feeding box. One of the early church fathers, Chromatius, said this, the Son of God, who is the God of the universe, is born a human being in the flesh. He permits himself to be placed in a manger, and the heavens are within that manger. I love that. Thus, he is the one, the God of glory and the Lord of majesty, uh, whom, as a tiny infant, the Magi recognized. All the cosmos, all of creation contained within, within this, this baby's body in the manger. Now, the Magi are not seeking an earthly king, because if they had been, they would have been very disappointed. Uh, they would have felt like their journey was in vain. But they're seeing a heavenly king. Therefore, it's like their spirits were, were receiving revelation at this moment uh, from the Holy Spirit. Something awesome, something heavenly, otherworldly was in front of them. Excuse me. I was reading John 3 again a few days ago in, in Jesus' encounter with, with Nicodemus. And, and he said this to Nicodemus, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if we tell you, if I tell you about heavenly things? We need to let the gospel lift our eyes from earthly to heavenly, from temporal to eternal. I take us back where I began a couple of weeks ago. We need to enter into this gospel, like all four of them, with a sense of awe, a sense of we are stepping into something bigger than ourselves, bigger than the world. Now, for foreign dignitaries, from Persia to fall down and worship before a baby in an ordinary house in Bethlehem. This is a remarkable demonstration of the reversal of the world's values, which is another huge point through this entire gospel. Um, and this is going to be a prominent feature throughout. Let me give you a couple of examples, and there's many. But Matthew 18 starting at verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called the child whom he put among them and said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We've got to change to become humble like a child. Here's another one, Matthew 20 starting at verse 25. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you. Whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. Let's look at the gifts for a minute. There's much to cover today. Let's look at the gifts that they gave them. Then they opened their treasures and presented them with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It's interesting. Did you know that in the first 300 years of the church, um, there was more art 
uh, focusing on this, the giving of gifts by the Magi, than anything else. Imagine that, than anything else, the crucifixion, the resurrection, uh, uh, the empty tomb, whatever. There was more about this by a lot. I find that fascinating. So what's going on as they bring these gifts for a king? Because they revealed, the Holy Spirit revealed to those three magi, not an infant, but a king. An infant wouldn't be able to understand or appreciate those gifts. They would be inappropriate gifts for a child. Isn't it interesting? They didn't hesitate. They didn't postpone. They didn't say, let's come back when he's older, when he understands and appreciates these gifts. They treated him as one whose divinity is full right now, and in his divinity, he understands everything that's going on. And so they bow before this king with gifts that are completely appropriate to a king. They were fulfilling the acknowledgement of Christ on behalf of all nations. You see, they represent all nations. One of the early church fathers, Irenaeus, he's wonderful. Whenever you get a chance to read any Irenaeus, take it up. Um, he was the first to identify the significance of these three gifts. He said the gold uh, reflects his royalty, Jesus' royalty, frankincense, his divinity. And um, and the, the gift of frankincense is always associated with worshiping God. And myrrh was for the death and burial of a man, because that's when people died in those days, they were anointed with myrrh. So, the Magi's three gifts, um, they represent their full awareness of Christ's full identity. They were gifts for a king, they were gifts for God, and they were gifts for a man. Another church father, St. Basil, said this, The gifts of the Magi celebrate not only the birth of Christ, but birth of a new humanity. He called this the birthday of humanity, what went on at that moment. Isn't that wonderful? This is interesting, and it's something that that I didn't used to notice very much, but it is written about again and again and again. And as I studied this, I saw the significance of this verse, being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. So here we have an excellent example of how we can learn from the church fathers and the early church and the theologians from the first 1,500 years. Remember the literal meaning that, that we read Scripture in three ways. The literal meaning of what is the point of the truth being conveyed, the moral meaning, how can this make me more Christ-like, the spiritual reading, the, the deeper meaning revealing more of the mystery of Christ. So at the literal level, we can see that by them going another way, sovereign, the sovereign God both directs and protects his purposes, that, that uh, pursuing God comes with real danger, and it opens us up to spiritual warfare. We're going to talk a lot about that in a couple of weeks on chapter 4, and, and, and that we must stay alert to God's 
leading. They had to stay alert. Even after this wonderful encounter with the Christ child, they had to be sensitive because the Spirit of the Lord was saying, now you need to go a different way. There's also a moral reading here for us. After uh, encountering Christ and worshiping him, it changed the way that they lived. And for us, it changes the way we live when we truly encounter Christ. We must walk in a different way, with a different destination. And then we get to a very interesting reading, which is the spiritual reading. Uh, For much of church history, um, the church insisted that it was God that wrote all of Scripture. Therefore, All of Scripture carries a depth of meaning that can never, ever be exhausted. We touched on this a couple of weeks ago, but we're about to see a really good example of this. Um, Contrary to the influence of the Enlightenment, the late 17th through the 18th century, and we've, as I said, been influenced to read things kind of two-dimensionally, right, wrong, black, white. But but there's so much more of God's meaning than, than there can ever be beyond even what the author understood when he wrote it down, because the author was simply the vessel that God used. So in this verse, we see a clear example of multiple meanings, not right and wrong, multiple meanings, different depths of meaning drawn from different church fathers, and it'll help us to unveil the mysteries within this verse. Almost all of the fathers see great significance in the fact that the Magi returned by a different way. But I want to give you two different ways they saw it, and there's more, but this is just to give you an example. After encountering Christ, we must not and we cannot walk by old paths. This verse calls us to abstain from former wanderings, uh, from being in the far country. This interpretation understands that the Magi had left a dark place um, for some. Uh, some of the early commentators saw the dark place was Persia. Others said they'd left the dark place of Herod's court to finally get to. Uh, Bethlehem, and and to go from a dark place to a holy place. But here's another reading that kind of turns that on its head. St. Gregory saw something very different in this verse. He said this, Paradise is the far country from which the Magi came. Not literally, but they point us to the universal reality that we are made for something more and different. Once we encounter Jesus, we begin the journey back to our original country, paradise. Um, St. Gregory said that the way back uh, to our true home is repentance. We left, he said, we left our country by being proud, by being disobedient, by pursuing visible things. By tasting forbidden food, we must return to it by weeping, by being obedient, by rejecting visible things and curbing our bodily 
appetites. It is in the various interpretations uh, that that we are enriched. They give us food for thought and food for meditation, uh, contemplating both the worship and the wonder of Christ and, and the the paradox of longing for him and yet being with him. There's so much to say, but I, I've got to move forward and probably a little quicker. Let's look at Egypt. Now, after they'd left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt, I have called my son. Now, historically, at this time, uh, there was a large Jewish population in Egypt, in Alexandria. It was a safe place. Um, it's really interesting to me, and I've been thinking about this a lot, I must say, for a few weeks. In, in the Exodus story, Egypt was a place of judgment and punishment and torment and danger. Now, Egypt is the place of God's grace. And Matthew was so aware of that as he wrote this account. For Matthew, the flight into Egypt was a historical reality, but it had a much bigger meaning. Matthew is pointing to the gospel for the whole world. First, we have the Magi from Persia, and now we have Egypt receiving Christ. Jesus is honored from the east and now being kept safe in Egypt. And so we look for this movement. Uh, this has been called, I told you before, the most Jewish of the Gospels. And in one sense, it is stylistically, but thematically, it continues to move outwardly um, that grows throughout this whole Gospel. Also an interesting point, the Holy Family ran for their lives as political refugees. And Jesus has always and will always identify, especially with the broken, the oppressed. Uh, even from his infancy, we see he was a refugee. And so the Jesus way always embraces the alien. God says so much about that, always in the context of don't forget you too are aliens. So I just put that out there for us to think about the Jesus way embraces the alien. Um, this, this story tells me that obedience requires faith that, that goes beyond my personal peace. Sometimes obedience puts me in exactly the opposite place of peace. Um, by the way, they're not just skipping over to Alexandria. They're being told to make a journey as her, a brand new mother, and with this infant child, of at least 150 miles. So Moses and Egypt and the Exodus, we see them as gospel. There's parallels. There's what's called typology or illusions. Moses, he escaped, remember, infanticide. Pharaoh had all the Hebrew boys killed. Jesus escaped the same thing. Uh, Moses fled Pharaoh's anger. Jesus fled Herod's anger. Moses led Israel out of Egypt. 
for the church, Egypt represented bondage and worldliness. Um, but Moses leads Israel to the promised land. Now Jesus is the promised land. He is the new Israel. He brings us to, ultimately, a new heaven and a new earth. So Matthew, we must remember, is not just writing a narrative. He wants us to consider the the reality, the link between God's intervention on behalf of his people, Israel, and what he is doing right now through a new deliverer. The New Testament writers and the early fathers insist that the Old Testament can only be properly understood through the cross. A few weeks ago, Brad took us through the Emmaus Road experience. It was only through the cross and the resurrection that their eyes were open, and suddenly they understood the significance of all these scriptures that they'd known a long, long time. So Hosea in the uh, 700s BC, he writes, out of Egypt I've called my son. Matthew was quoting him, but it's not really a prophecy. It's more of a type. I said we'd look at that word. Typology is a transferable model. This is true and factual in the Old Testament, but we can apply it in the New Testament. Hosea is looking back uh, to the Exodus when he wrote that. But for Matthew, the Exodus was a powerful symbol for an even uh, greater work of deliverance. All right. Matthew is going to continue to compare and contrast Moses and Jesus throughout this gospel. And um, we've, we've seen and we'll see in chapter 4, so clearly Moses was 40 years in the uh, in the wilderness, Jesus fasted for 40 days. Uh, Israel is the vine that does not bring forth fruit. Isaiah 5, uh, 1 and 2. Now I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. I've always loved this passage. My beloved had a vineyard on a rich and fertile hill. He plowed the land, cleared the stones, planted it with the best vines. In the middle, he built a watchtower and carved a wine press in the uh, nearby rocks. Then he waited for a harvest of sweet grapes, but the grapes that grew were bitter. It's no accident that later in Matthew, Jesus will tell a parable, a story, that is exactly parallel to this. A landowner building a wine press and it not bringing forth fruit. But in contrast, Jesus um, is the true vine. He he is the fruitful vine, John 15. Let's look briefly again at Herod. When Herod saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated, and he uh, sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time when he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. And now he's quoting Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be consoled because they are no more. This was a historical reality. Herod had a long, long record of incredible atrocities. And as he grew older, he grew more and more 
paranoid, increasingly insecure about his position on the throne. You know, he killed his brother-in-law. He had his mother-in-law killed. He had his wife killed. In his, in his will, he said, on the day that I die, I want all the aristocracy killed so that there will be an appropriate level of mourning in the land. Uh, thankfully, they did not follow through with that. But, but Satan, spiritual warfare is so real. We watch it here in Matthew. Satan knew who the holy child was. I think, I think a little later when Jesus is in the wilderness, he'll start to have doubts. But right now, he knows who the holy child was, and so he moved through Herod. And so it's beyond a man's paranoia and irrationality. It's, it's that the Magi, uh, God rather, was, was using Herod, or the enemy was using Herod to, to try to stop, to cut off God's plan. It's also interesting that, that Matthew was quoting from Jeremiah 31, because this is a these, this verse, chapter 15, it is in the middle of a, ch of a whole chapter that's all about hope and restoration and returning. Um, so Matthew links the pain of what happened to those infants uh, with this part of Jeremiah to invite his readers to find reassurance that even human tragedy can be understood within overall good purposes of God. The church fathers said that, that these infants would, would now, they, he, they've written, they said they bypassed all the pain of life and they're now with the Lord. Um, but I think that the, there's another side. We must always remember there is a very real spiritual battle going on all the time. And I don't think we're in a place to always say, oh, well, uh, it all turned out for the best or God used it for good, that, that, there is a battle. There's a great battle. So let's finish this up with the journey to Nazareth. They've gone to Egypt. They're heading back to Jerusalem. And then when Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who were seeking the child are dead. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus uh, was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned, again, five dreams, folks, after being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee, and there he made his home in a town called Nazareth. So that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled, he will be called a Nazarene. Now you can look through your Old Testament all day, all week. You will not find a verse that says he will be called a Nazarene. So let's unwrap this a little bit. Nazareth was a small community at that time of about 460 people. It was obscure. Even other Gentiles looked down on it. Um... In John 7, 27, it says, no one even knows where he is from. At a time when Matthew was writing this gospel, Christians were called the Nazarene sect. You'll see that in Acts 24. But that wasn't a compliment. It was an insult. It was derisive. So this was to fulfill 
so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled, he will be called a Nazarene. Unlike all the previous quotes, which were very specific of specific prophets and verses, this is general. He says, through the prophets. In fact, during the time of the Old Testament prophets, Nazareth didn't even exist yet. Instead, he's pointing out the theme of Old Testament prophecy. Matthew's point is that Messiah would be despised, looked down upon. For example, uh, Isaiah 53, 3, he was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity, as one whom others hide their faces. He was despised and held of no account. He shall be called a Nazarene, so at a historical, literal level, Jesus grew up in an obscure village in Galilee called Nazareth. Um. But this this final statement speaks of the fact that Jesus seemed to come from nowhere. So in the natural, he'd be likely to be ignored um, or looked down upon. Remember, I talked the first or second week about the geographical implications of the difference between northern Galilee and Judea. But from Old Testament times, a Nazarene didn't mean someone coming from Nazareth. It meant someone who was set apart to God as holy. It is very possible that Matthew was making an allusion not just to where Jesus was from, but to his holiness that the prophets foresaw. So Matthew has now laid the groundwork, chapter 1 and 2, his his, uh, prologue. And this is the groundwork for the narrative of his entire gospel, Uh, from the genealogy right through to the divine protection of the Holy Family, Matthew is showing us the sovereign work of God, and he's showing us that God's plan is unstoppable. Matthew, at the same time in this prologue, is leading us toward a gospel that will embrace the whole world, inviting uh, both um, his fellow Jews and the Gentiles to say yes to Messiah. So next week, we will begin, begin the narrative itself, where where we'll jump ahead 30 years. Thank you. We're about to have a discussion, Tim and I, about some of the implications of uh, of what we read today. Now what? The gospel is meant to be lived. We now invite you to be a part of the discussion as we talk about how to apply this teaching. YouTube viewers can use the comments section below. You can also email your questions and comments to podcast at impactnations.com. Well, <laughs> sorry about the audio trouble. You never know, but way to shift. <laughs> Thanks for keeping my seat warm. Um, <clears throat> my not entirely sure what happened there, but uh, thanks for continuing to pursue it. That was fantastic uh i had many questions about the the magi and you answered them um and i've got a few more uh kind of follow-up questions and so i think that we should finish uh today with you and isaiah singing we three kings <laughs> that makes sense i was watching uh isaiah was putting up some of that art that you had found mm. uh from those you were saying it was the kind of the most popular subject of art in the first 300 years by of a church. country yeah. mile and there was one of them like a stone kind of carving or something and the the camels looked 
really cartoonish. Like they looked, <laughs> it was really funny that I thought, man, that looks like something that could be it's great. in VeggieTales or something. <laughs> um, you got time for a story? Can I tell you a story? You have, yep. I don't think you've heard this one yet. We got this one this morning. Um, all right. So those who have been with Impact Nations for a while, you uh, have heard and very likely participated in uh, the freeing of brick slaves. Uh, these are children that uh, we found, uh, our, our partners found um, making bricks, piling bricks in brick factories. Their, their families were uh, stuck in generational slavery. Well, uh, there was a man named Gary who was born into that. Uh, he was born, his parents were already slaves in the brick factory and he grew up in that. And now he's an adult and his children were born into slavery. Uh, and lo and behold, one day some folks came and said, we would like to send your children to school, Gary. Um, Will you, will you let us do that? And he, of course, was very excited. He never got a chance to go to school as a child. Uh, so he got to send his children to school. Well, of course, um, as is the case, when we demonstrate the gospel, we also preach the gospel. He began to hear the gospel. He saw the gospel impacting his family's life as his children were uh, now going to school which was, of course, going to break generational slavery, generational poverty right there mm -hmm. um, by them getting an education. Well, he responded to the gospel, and he just starts telling people about the gospel. He just can't help but tell people the good news of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And uh, something's happened. I don't know how this happened or why. I'd, the details are still unclear to me. But for some reason, the owner of the brick factory forgave half of Gary's debt. Uh, he was working there because he's indebted to the, to the and, owner and of the factory. And it's set up that he can never, he get, can out never of debt, get out right? of debt. Exactly. But the Lord is beginning to change hearts here, as you can see. And so half of his debt was instantly wiped away. The church gathered and paid off the other half of his debt. Oh, you're kidding. And Gary just kept on telling people the good news of Jesus. And then he felt called to go back to his hometown and begin to tell people about Jesus there. Gary is now the pastor of a church of 150 people. <laughs> All because one day oh somebody came along and said, we'd like to help you get your kids into school. Would you oh. care to partner with us in that? <laughs> oh. so is, that? That is amazing. That's a good story, yeah? I mean, you and I will never forget the first day we went no. into the brick yeah. factory and we saw there was starvation, malnourishment, and yeah. oppression. Yeah. It was horrible. Oh, yeah. And actually, it was your faith more than mine because yeah. you stood up in front of our team and said, I believe. Yeah. And it was going to be $130 a kid to That's get him right. out, yeah. get him uniform get him into school and get mm -hmm. him fed every day. Yeah. And you said, I believe we can get 300. And I sat there and everybody <laughs> cheered and I smiled and clapped. And I thought, Oh, Tim, what have you done? Yeah. How many have we got out? Uh, so far, I believe the number is right around 1300, uh, 1300 in the last two years. Yeah. There's still hundreds of children that are waiting to get into school that, you know, because of course word spreads. <laughs> oh, <laughs> what is, a story. I, had, want to do. So, I That never crossed my mind. I thought you might enjoy that one. Yeah. I love so, it. uh, Hey, this is something that's ongoing. It's on our website, impactnations.com slash bricks, I think is the website we set up for it. <laughs> um, 
130 bucks gets a kid out of school, even if you, you want to just pitch in 30 bucks. Get some out of the factory, sorry, and into school. Uh, and so we're going to be talking more about this in the months to come yeah. because, uh, as I said, there's hundreds of more kids that are waiting and they're in school right now. This pandemic has kind of been a start, stop, start, stop here. Yeah. But they're, uh, the government of India is looking to kind of stretch this school year out a little bit to make up for lost time. And then a new school year is going to begin in july uh and so we would love to get more kids ready to go for july so uh anyway you'll, you'll hear more about that on the podcast in the weeks to wow. come and the months to come but i just we I just got that story today to so, meeting gary the yeah, next time i'm indeed. in india yeah you too I'll yeah bet. absolutely and you know what i um sorry i digress we, we should talk some other things but just as you say that something occurred to me um my pastor, uh, our our church recently partnered with Impact Nations to get food to families in refugee camp. We talked about that a few weeks ago, I think. Uh, and uh, he was saying on Sunday, just as he was just kind of giving an attaboy to the church, he said, you know, there will come a day when you are in heaven and some somebody will come to you and say, thank you. And you'll say, thank you for what? What are you talking about? They said, well, I was a refugee starving in Africa and I'd never heard the good news of Jesus. And then you gave, which meant that somebody came and brought me food and told me the good news of Jesus. And now I'm here. And so thank you. <laughs> I was, and I was hungry you'll meet and you Gary gave me food. Day. I was yep. thirsty and you gave me a drink. Yep. So Gary will be one of those guys one day. So Beautiful. anyway, fun story. Uh, impactnations.com slash bricks. Check it out. All right. Uh, let me check my phone. Cause I was, I was jotting down some questions as we went. Um, Here's a question for you. The, the Magi show up and say, hey, we're looking for the king of the Jews, yep. uh, which takes some moxie because I'm pretty sure they were talking to King Herod, yeah, who was were. pretty much the king of the Jews in the yeah. earthly sense. Yep. Um, so good on them for having the guts to ask that question. But where did they get that phrase? Like why? You know, they, you, you talked about that even the gifts were, uh, there's an indication that they were, they understood this was for divinity. Like they understood there was a divine nature to Jesus. How did they get there? Like, where does this stuff come I think from? there's two things. Yeah. I think it's a combination of just flat out revelation. I said, even the star reminds us that this yeah. is so revelatory, but two, the, uh, as we, as we read in Daniel, the 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 magi were highly learned people who mm-hmm. who were strong in in uh, different languages mathematics etc so to be highly learned in 660 miles away they probably had encountered the scriptures okay uh 660 miles away that brings me to my next question it, and it's i don't even know if it's a question <laughs> as so much as just a, wow, you, you said something, you said, I'm quoting you. It's a, you said, it takes effort to change the direction of our lives. And I, I just, I just stopped to ponder that. And I would ask our listeners to do the same. That's a really profound truth. Like these guys made the effort to go 660 miles to change the trajectory of their lives. Is that something that effort that's required does does the church do a good enough job of telling people that? Do do we tell disciples that when we're making disciples, or are we preaching a gospel that's you know, hey, just you say yes to Jesus, and from there it's your your part's done. He'll take care of the rest. Well, you know that I am. I've been convinced forever as a pastor, as a church planter, and and now you know this 
whatever it's been, 17 years with Impact Nations, that our gospel's too small and it's too easy, mm. you know. And uh, Bonhoeffer talked a lot about this. And I think that uh, we, his, the power of the Holy Spirit doesn't grab us by the scruff of the neck. He says, I'm here beside you. And as long as you want to keep walking, I will walk with you and yeah. we will head you. Everywhere. So it takes effort. And guess what? It doesn't just take effort in that first year or two. Uh, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm coming up 45 years. You're still it, putting in an effort? I really am. Yeah. I'm continuing to the effort to grow in God, yeah. to grow in understanding. So it takes effort. And you know something else that I noticed as a pastor? If we make it easy, if we lower the bar, uh, to make people feel more included, they don't. Pe huh. People want a challenge. Deep down, we want a challenge. I mean, why do you? Why do people take up really tricky hobbies? Why do they yeah. take up golf because they want to get better and better? Yeah. We're made. It's it's part of our spiritual DNA mm. to move forward and not to stay still. Yeah. And uh, so I believe there's a long answer, but I think I would absolutely embrace any. Any plan of making disciples that challenges? Yeah. Good. Um, one last question. I think it's an important one, and it, we probably don't have time for a lot of it, but it, I, I want to come back to it. Uh, again, quoting something you said a few minutes ago, you said, even human tragedy can be understood within the overall good purposes of God. Uh, you're, you're speaking of the Herod's just massacre of, of the babies, mm -hmm. which is... It's one of those things that sometimes I fear we read. It's you know, it's a single sentence, and, and we, we carry can move on. on. And the yeah. the awful, horrific, horrific nature of it. Uh, even as you were, I think it was Jeremiah you're quoting there, uh, or the Jeremiah thirty one fifteen. Yeah. And as as you listen to that, it just grips you because of some of the just poetic language of that. Yeah. I think it helps it sink in a little bit more than just the the facts of the matter. How do we reconcile that? Like, how how is it a part of God's good purposes? Like, okay, what? tell us more. And and let me say one more thing so I don't forget. Yeah, the the other verse that was linked in is that a voice was heard in Rama, wailing in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. Right? Yeah. We've all read that. You may not know that Rama was the gathering point for the exiles as they were about to be marched off mm. to. Uh, uh, Babylon. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? And Matthew's readers knew that. Yeah. And they yeah. Knew that. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So what I gave you was, again, there's a multiplicity. There's not, we've got to get free from our dualistic thinking of scripture. This is what it means. It means this, therefore it can't mean that it's mm -hmm. right. It's wrong. Okay. And uh, I tried to unwrap a little bit of that today with, with the one example of the, they went by another way. Church fathers, uh, a bunch of them said what I quoted, that, mm -hmm. that, you know, God uses it and now they're, they're with him. And that's absolutely true. But what I'm afraid of is that uh, whitewashes yeah. the pain of tragedy. He was a man of sorrows and he was completely in step with our pain. Mm -hmm. Jesus took our pain to the cross. He didn't say, oh, well, don't worry about it because you're in heaven. 
And so, although the father said that, and there is a truth, there is a truth. Uh, the danger of that is whitewashing. Oh, God works all things together for good. And we read that verse out of context, and there are tragedies that happen all the time yeah. that um, I don't think were Paul's intention at all when he wrote Romans 8.28. Hmm. Oh, man. Now, <laughs> I'm going to resist the urge to get into the context of Romans 8.28. Um, Why don't you say some stuff about it? I know that's a chapter you've really studied. Yeah, it is. I, I, here's the thing about Romans 8.28. I, the, the last little phrase of that is, for those who are called according to his purpose. And now you got me on the spot, so I'm going to real quick just get it up in front of me to make sure I'm And speaking, this is where I sing truth. We Three Kings. <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> Complete with actions, I hope. Um, so... If we look at the context of Romans 8.28, we begin to understand the, the purpose for those who are calling accord, called according to his purpose, uh, which is beginning to reflect who he is. Uh, it's He chose us to become like his son. Yeah. So our purpose is to become like him and to, to be reflect into yes, the image of his son. Absolutely. So when, if we're called according to his purpose, then the good is actually being formed into his image, right? That's true. Uh, so true. those, those, anything that is forming us into his image, he's working it for his good and for our good. Yeah. Because, my personal belief is the more I conform to his image, the more I reflect his goodness and his glory, the better it is for me. That is my good. Um, so he's using it, but he, I do not believe that means he initiated or desired those painful things. Yeah. And that's why it's like a gateway that opens up to the, to the next, whatever it is, six or eight verses where he raises up our vision higher and higher and higher. Nothing can separate us. Nothing can stop the purpose of God, mm -hmm. which is the good that he has. And I think that's a lot different than, than somebody loses a loved one in an accident yeah. and saying, Oh, well, it was, God's going to use it for good. Verse 30, having chosen them, he called them to come to him and having called them, he gave them right standing with himself and having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. By the way, that's all past tense, which is really interesting too, because mm -hmm. it's, it's future tense and yet it's past tense at the same time. My glorification has not fully come and yet he declares it finished. Yeah. Um, and that's the working out this of the, the purposes of him. <laughs> so do you feel like this prologue of chapter one and two has, has, helped us to get a foundation because now we're jumping ahead and now there's a narrative. But do you see what I've been trying to emphasize that in this most Jewish of all gospels, mm -hmm. he is planting seeds. Some of them are already little plants. <laughs> this gospel is going to it's, all nations. Yeah. Uh, including the Magi is fascinating in the same way that Luke includes the shepherds who are the outsiders. Yep. Uh, I think Matthew, it sounds to me like got even more radical by including the Magi. Like, these guys are way outsiders, and this gospel is for everyone. Yep. Everyone's invited. Yep. Yeah. Everyone's invited. Uh, thank you so much for joining us again this week at the Impact Nations podcast. As a reminder, we are here on YouTube Live every Thursday at 3 p.m. 
Mountain Daylight Time right now. Uh, if you'd like to join us later, you can always watch it on YouTube later, uh, youtube.com slash impact nations. Uh, you can find a playlist for the podcast. The entire Matthew series will be right there in order for you. Um, what a great way to just do Bible study, you know, if, on a regular basis, just work your way through this book and see it come alive. And we're not in a hurry. We are not in a hurry. True that. Um, if you are a listener, if you'd like to, if you prefer to just have the audio, we make that available to you as well. If you go to impactnations.com slash podcast, uh, you can hit the subscribe button and have the audio downloaded to your favorite podcast app. No problem. Yeah, I think you can even uh, listen right on the website if you want, that, uh, if that's easier for you. Impactnations.com slash podcast. Uh, but do join us live. We'd love to have you live. Yeah. Uh, and uh, if you hit subscribe at YouTube and then hit the little bell that comes up after you hit the subscribe button, uh, then you will be notified a little little notification comes across your phone you just swipe that and suddenly you are there you're joining us live you can do it on your phone wherever you're at Um, if you like it tell your friends absolutely tell your friends in fact we're we're working on a little promotion where we're gonna have some prizes if you tell your friends i think first Uh, prize is uh, you singing we three kings I wish we planned for that because then we could have actually gone out to like a pre-recorded thing of Isaiah and I saying actually, that. Actually, that's second prize. <laughs> First prize is you not singing yeah. with three kings. <laughs> All right. We're getting punchy. Folks, thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you again next week. God bless. Bye-bye.